0: the lord's blessing on our time and then get right into our lesson all right would you bow with me heavenly father we do rejoice in the things that we have been studying about the lord jesus christ thank you for the great salvation provided by him and that he was willing to take upon himself human flesh and dwell among sinful men in a voluntary humility and Father, as we again consider him today, as we look at his response to the beginning of his consumption of that horrible cup, which was your appointment for him to drink, as we look at our own you yielded and, and thank you that our refuge is in the unspotted righteousness of your son and that in your court of heaven you have declared us righteous in him that is amazing but father how we long to to be truly righteous people in our works here on earth in our deeds and in our thoughts our attitudes so we ask that you would empower us by your holy spirit we ask that there would be nothing that he enters into this place this morning that is impure and includes our thoughts and attitudes and everything else nothing that defiles or grieves your spirit and attempts to hinder our enjoyment of the sense of his fullness in this place may this next hour genuinely be a time of refreshing for our spirits because we find here the comfort and the consolation of the scriptures And Lord, I ask that you would illumine our minds to understand the things that the world outside these walls has no concept of and no appreciation for. So I ask that you would lift lift us up out of ourselves and warm our affections toward yourself as we consider this morning the majesty of Christ our King in Gethsemane. We do ask these things Lord Jesus in your name. Amen. We come now to the second phase of the Gethsemane scene where we find the Lord's majesty displayed in absolutely every single thing that took place. It is just wonderful. Last week's lesson remember was entitled The Mystery of the Gethsemane Cup, right? today's lesson is the majesty of the Gethsemane King Jesus Christ is no longer the suffering son of man prostrate on his face before his father today's scene he is the sovereign king of heaven displaying both his divine authority over Satan's realm and also his protective power over those who belong to him this happens to be one of my very favorite passages in all of the scripture. You say, what? The Lord's arrest in Gethsemane? Yes, the Lord's arrest in Gethsemane. I love this passage. But I also believe that it is one of the passages that has probably been most overlooked or downplayed in the word of God. And that really is a terrible shame we're not going to do that. I say, if Satan wants us to do that this morning, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) We're not going to downplay this passage. Um, Because here what we see is at the very time the Lord actually begins to sip, take a sip from that horrible cup that was divinely decreed for him to drink, he displays the majesty of his person in a most glorious way so we're not going to downplay this at all the primary passage of the scripture for this lesson is given to us again by who which gospel writer john of course we're going to be looking at the majesty and the sovereignty of the king where else would you expect to find us where were we when we saw his great creative miracle his first miracle when he turned water into wine what book are we in John, the only one who gave us that miracle in John chapter 2. Where were we when we saw the Lord heal a man who had been born blind? John, again, the only one who gave us that miracle in John chapter 9. Where were we when we saw a man who had been dead for four days come walking out of his tomb? The only one who gave us that was, of course, John. So where would you expect us to find Christ display his majesty on display in his conversation with the arresting party in Gethsemane where would you expect to find his majesty on display other than the book of John of course it's in John and John is the only one who gives to us what we're going to read in verses 2 to 9 he's the only one who gives us this there is one verse found in Matthew and there's one verse found in Mark and there's half of a verse in Luke that tell us about the coming of this arresting party and the arrival of Judas Iscariot. Um, And he comes with, by the way, if you put all four Gospels together, we find out that he comes with chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, the elders of the people, temple guard, and Roman soldiers. But the bulk of what we're going to be discussing this morning is found in John. We're going to see the excellencies of the majesty of Christ in a way that few other passages in the gospel records give. So with the opening of John 18, we begin to consider the events that now come together in very rapid fire succession. Just one after another, all the events that bring Jesus to the cross. It only took us 10 or 11 years to get here, but we're finally here. We're finally here. From here through the end of our chronological study of the four Gospels, then we have the narrative record of the arrest and the uh, trials of Jesus. Do you know how many trials he goes through? Yeah, they're men's trials. Men are trying Jesus. So how many trials do you think there would be? What's man's number? six. There's six religious, I mean three religious trials, and there's three um, political, civil trials that the Romans. So, all together, six trials. So, we're going to look at his arrest, and we're going to look at each one of those trials, and then, of course, his death and uh, his resurrection. These were get it beginning today. We're beginning the final events of the Lord's life, which, of course, is the climax. He came to die, right? So, we're finally at the climax of his life. Everything that he has been preparing his men for and everything that he has been predicting for the past three and a half years is about to happen so with that introduction let's look at the scripture for today which is john 18 verses 2 to 9 after verse 1 remember in verse 1 he said that the lord after he spoke the high priestly prayer he entered he went over the brook kidron and he entered into a garden which we know is Gethsemane with his disciples. And then starting in verse 2, it says, And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. What place? Gethsemane. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and from the other accounts we know there were scribes and there were elders and others, along with the chief priests and Pharisees, They cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. Do you notice that the little pronoun he is in italics? What does that mean, ladies? Not in the original. So how did he answer them? He said, I am. And notice this at the end of verse 5. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. All right, powerful passage. What we find first of all in this, in this passage here in John is a sketch of the preparations that have been made for the Lord's arrest. All four gospel writers do this, but John gives us certain facts that are distinctive just to him. And those are what we want to highlight. He begins by telling us of Judas's part in all of this. So since John now again mentions Judas Iscariot, who we have not heard of since when? When was the last time we heard of Judas? When they were in the upper room, and he departed, and it said he went out into the night, remember? So since we've not, and that seems like it was ages ago, doesn't it? So let's, because it was a long time ago, let's review the succession of events that brought Judas to this point where he arrives in Gethsemane with this huge arresting party, okay? Remember when we were told that it was two days before the Passover that the chief priests determined once and for all that they were going to kill Jesus. It was two days before the Passover, Since we're going with a Thursday Passover and a Thursday crucifixion, what would that make the the day that they determined they would kill Jesus? Tuesday, okay, Tuesday, they decided they would kill Jesus. I mean, they had been planning and wanting to for a long time, but now they were very serious and they sat down and counseled together how they would kill him. Why? Why did they want to kill him? Well, for one thing, they were extremely jealous of his popularity. They were also afraid that if everyone came to believe on him, Rome would be so upset with this new proclaimed king of Israel that they would come in and take away their land and their positions. They actually stated that. That's the bottom line. Those Pharisees and scribes loved their positions of power and authority over the people, didn't they? And they didn't want to lose that. There were also a number of things that Jesus did that really aggravated them. For example, he was always going around referring to God as his father. And they got what many people today don't get. They understood that that was a claim to deity, that he was of the same essence as God. And that aggravated them. Um, Also, he was always rubbing shoulders with what kind of people? Sinners. The down and out, you know, sinners, prostitutes, publicans, and, and just common people. If he was really the Messiah, wouldn't he be rubbing shoulders with them instead of with, with such low-class people? And, oh, can you imagine the audacity of the man? He deliberately went around doing good things and healing people like that impotent man at the pool of Bethesda and like that man who had been born blind. And what day did he happen to do so many of those things? The Sabbath. Shame on him. And then to top it all off, he uh, went and got himself even more popular by raising a very well liked man and a rather wealthy man from Bethany named Lazarus. After the guy had been dead for four years. At four years. Well, he could have done that too. <laughs> They could have done that, no problem, but after he'd been dead for four days. And he did it publicly. There was no way to deny it. There was too many witnesses. And, and so they didn't like that because his popularity grew. And then, just a few days before this, now I remember I'm talking about Tuesday night when they're counseling together to kill him, just a few days before that, he had allowed literally tens of thousands of Passover pilgrims to proclaim him as the Messiah, as the King of Israel, and the Son of David. That was on Sunday. And he did not tell them to be quiet, did he? He did not deny their claims. And what did he then do on Monday morning? March straight to the temple and hit them where it really hurt, in their wallets, because he cleansed the temple for the second time in his ministry of all those uh, who bought and sold and he turned over the tables of the money changers and he wouldn't even allow people can you imagine this he considered the temple a holy place <laughs> and so he wouldn't allow people to make shortcuts through the temple you know they'd take their pots to fill with water at the Kidron or wherever whatever they were doing they were taking shortcuts and he stopped all of that and then what else did he do well by this time they're furious they're very furious Um, And so they determined that they were going to launch a series of attacks against him as soon as he arrived on Tuesday, which they knew he would do, and he did. He comes marching in on Tuesday morning, and they repeatedly, every one of the different sects, S-E-T-C-S, of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, even the Herodians joined up with some of the Pharisees' disciples. Remember all those attacks where they asked him politically loaded questions? And theologically loaded questions in order to try to trick him up with his answers and what he would say. But what happened in every single one of those attacks? He showed them up. He sure did. He answered them so profoundly, like render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Uh, He answered them so profoundly and so scripturally accurately that they were the ones who went away with their tails tucked between their legs. They were the ones who went away looking like a bunch of fools. And they didn't like that at all. But the straw that broke the camel's back was his denunciation discourse of Matthew 23, which was his last public statement to them. Last time he publicly spoke to the religious rulers of Israel. Now remember, this was spoken on Tuesday in front of great crowds of people And what did he say to them? He didn't pull back any punches. He said, whoa, how many? Seven or eight woes. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And then what did he call them? Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Over and over again. And if that wasn't enough, he also called them blind and fools. And he called them a generation of vipers. And he called them whited sepulchers and serpents, publicly. And their blood was really boiling. So, it's now Tuesday late afternoon, two days before the Passover, probably at the very same time that the Lord is giving his men the Olivet Discourse. Remember, after His denunciation, woe discourse, Matthew 23. He took his men, departed out of Jerusalem, went up to the Mount of Olives, and from there gave them the Olivet Discourse, the greatest prophetic sermon ever given by the greatest prophet who ever lived. And it's all about the time of his second coming. Probably while he is giving them that discourse... These men, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious rulers, that Council of Seventy, the Sanhedrin, with Caiaphas, are gathering together. This is Matthew 14, 1. Excuse me, Mark 14, 1. It says they're gathering together and deciding, quote, how they might take him by craft. What does that mean? Treacherously, sneakily, trick, you know, by trickery, and put him to death. But one thing, and we all remember this, one thing in their council, how they're going to, by craft, take him and and put him to death, one thing they determined they would not do is what? Take him and crucify him on the feast day. They would not do it at the time of the Passover. That would not be good for them, would it, (laughs) because of the massive crowds. In the holy city at that time. Remember Josephus said there could have been as many as 2 million people. There in Jerusalem to celebrate that particular Passover. And many of those people looked favorably upon Jesus. Especially the Galileans. Well all this was going on. And then they're gathered together Tuesday afternoon, late afternoon. This council deciding what they're going to do. And wouldn't you know it. Just amazingly. Suddenly, later, that same day, Judas, Judas arrives before them with his offer to betray his master. Now, to our knowledge, there had not been any communication or any interchange at all between Judas and the Lord's enemies up to this point. This, as far as we know, is his first time of communication with these leaders. Now, a number of things may have triggered this opening in Judas's heart for him to listen to the whisperings of Satan. Because that's what he's doing. He's listening to Satan whispering in his ear, betray the Lord, betray the Master. Well, perha- what precipitated all this? Well, perhaps it was when Jesus did absolutely nothing about the massive Palm Sunday pilgrims hailing him as the Messiah. You know, this was a time when the disciples, including Judas, were very excited. And they would be thinking, Jesus, this is your chance. All these people, thousands of people, are hailing you, finally, as who you really are, the promised Messiah. So they expected him to say, okay, everybody, follow me. Take up arms and let's revolt against Rome. But what did he do Sunday afternoon after you know, the triumphal entry? What did he do? Nothing. Nothing much. I mean, he went to the temple and he taught a little bit and he healed some people. But they were expecting something spectacular. And I am sure that that greatly disappointed um, Judas especially. And perhaps also it was when he kept telling them he was going to be crucified. He was going to be turned over to the religious rulers and crucified. And he had just said to them, Two days before the Passover, which also was on Tuesday, he had said after two days the Son of Man will be delivered over to his enemies to be crucified. Isn't it interesting when you think about the fact that Judas heard that and he was the one who actually caused that? He actually helped the Lord's prophecy to to come true. He heard the Lord say after two days that would happen. And Judas may have realized, you know, it probably been irking him for a while, but finally he gets it. You know, Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to be crucified, and, and, and Judas gets it. It, it. You know, this guy is really intent on being killed. And therefore, what would that mean to him? No seat of honor in the kingdom, and no great earthly treasure that he could get his hands on. And um, And then also, okay, we can also be sure that Judas was not happy about the lord's rebuke of him on tuesday evening all right remember back to our chronology of the passion week the lord did the denunciation discourse in the temple then he left and he went up the mount of olives and gave the olivet discourse to his men then where did they proceed to go where they went every night to bethany and that night tuesday night in bethany at the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, Mary was just so overwhelmed with love for her Savior who had raised her brother from the dead. And she had sat at his feet. She actually understood when he said he was going to die, he was going to die. So what did she do? She broke open her expensive spikenard perfume and lavished the Lord from head to feet with that expensive perfume and who stirred up trouble over that judas what a waste what a waste and the lord rebuked him remember and I'm, i mean he rebuked all of his men but i imagine his eyes were focused on judas and he said let her alone she has saved this you know understanding she saved this for my burial and i am sure he was not very happy about that rebuke And actually it was later that very night, after everyone had gone to bed, that Judas slipped out to do his dastardly deed. However, the primary prompt of everything regarding Judas was that he was listening to and believing the whispers of Satan instead of listening to the Lord Jesus Christ, the words of Christ. So Judas, that... Tuesday night went to the chief priests and the captains that's in Luke 22 4 and suggested to them the possibility of him betraying the master into their hands but I can imagine they had a conversation and they would talk about well the crowds are so great we can't take Jesus during the day but perhaps he could be arrested at night And perhaps, because we don't want to do it on the Passover, we'd actually like to wait until the Passover season is over. Perhaps we can arrest him after the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and uh, get him in some quiet part of the country. Once he leaves Jerusalem, maybe he'll go back to Jericho, maybe he'll go up to Galilee. And Judas must have shared with them, and they would know this, how beneficial it would be to have someone on the inside reporting to them the Lord's movements and to have someone who, um, you know, could tell them where he was and when it would be safe to come and get him and also someone who could identify Jesus to the Roman troops who they would bring with them because most of the Roman soldiers wouldn't know Jesus, you know, one Jewish man from another Jewish man, okay? So he would point out how beneficial it would be to have an insider, and Judas willingly offered to do this. And the scripture says, and this puts it mildly, that the priests were glad. Yeah, I bet they were glad. This was like just too good to be true. Don't you know, they're having their counsel, and the last thing in the world they ever expected to have happen is one of Jesus' disciples to walk in and say, I'll do the betrayal? They were glad, and they must have seen this as divine providence. You see how things can look so different? They can look topsy-turvy. To them, they probably thought this meant God was on their side, right? Don't you think that's what they thought? So, from that point, from Tuesday evening, the scripture says that Judas was watching for an opportunity to betray Jesus apart from the multitudes. And then, early on Thursday evening remember the jewish time thursday began at six o'clock early on thursday which would be our wednesday night in the upper room jesus exposes him verily verily he says to his disciples i say unto you that one of you shall betray me now you would think that that would have gained judas's attention wouldn't it regarding the omniscience Of Jesus, He must have thought, how does he know? Because it was just two days earlier. He had slipped away to betray him. How does he know? You'd think that would get his attention. But then again, if you really think that through, wouldn't you think that everything Judas had heard and seen over the past three years, three and a half years, would have gotten his attention? What had he seen? Amazing things. Jesus walking on water, calming a stormy sea, raising the dead. I mean, on and on we could go. Wouldn't you think that would have gained his attention? But it didn't. And then he had the audacity to hypocritically ask, along with all the other disciples, when they said, Lord, is it I? What did he ask? Didn't call him Lord, but he said, Master, is it I? And Jesus said to him, Thou hast said. In other words, yes, it's you. So you see, Judas now knows that jesus knows and yet you know he continues to play his little charade and late a little bit later jesus says to john he it is to whom i shall give a sop when i have dipped it and of course he gives the sop to the one on his left which was judas and then he says to judas because judas took the sop and what happened what did we read about when judas took the sop from the savior's hand who entered into him at that point satan entered into him he'd been whispering all along but now the last opportunity for grace and he rejected it and he satan then entered into judas and then jesus gave a command to not only judas but also the one possessing him he gave a command to judas and to satan and he said that thou doest do quickly and judas went out into the night and he went straight to Caiaphas' house, and he informed him and his crowd that things have changed. Things have changed. Jesus knows. He knows about the betrayal, and he's in on the know. The I don't know how he knows, but he knows. So guess what we have to do? If we're going to take him, we need to take him quickly. Just like Jesus said, right? Even against their plans. But now, who's in control? Of this whole thing? Of course, Jesus is in control. And uh, so they set about to do so. They, if he knows, we better grab him while we can. Now, it was going to take them a few hours to uh, procure the temple guard of soldiers along with some of their officers. And it would take them a, a few hours to gather a detachment along with a, a, a band of, of Roman soldiers or a detachment of Roman soldiers and it would take them a while to awaken and gather any of the, the religious rulers that weren't with them while they were counseling or maybe by the time Judas got there that night they had broken up that council so Caiaphas would have to send people out to waken up the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders and the chief priests and all of them and gather everybody together and make their plans, right? That would all take some time. And as we know, we've got two scenes going on, Right? got this scene going on with judas and all the religious rulers trying to get a a band together to go and arrest jesus and at that same time that is now taking place we were doing our extended study of john 14 to 17 because once judas left the upper room the lord then commenced to turn transition the passover supper into the lord's supper and then what did he begin to do Well, he began to comfort and instruct his men with the words of the farewell discourse, right? John 14, 15, and 16. And after he spoke the words of 14, he said, come, let us arise. And they left the upper room, and as their walking to gethsemane he gives them the contents of john 15 all about the vine and the branches and the the contents of john 16 where he tells them about the coming of the holy spirit and other things and then right outside of gethsemane what does he do he stops lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays john 17 the lord's high priestly prayer then they enter into gethsemane and he spent the last hour or so in heavy agonizing prayer yielding himself in submission to his father's will to drink in full the cup of god's divine judgment against the sins of the world so that's all that's going on now there is little doubt that judas with this huge arresting party and we're going to see how huge it was that he went first once they would gather everybody together where would he go to look for jesus Absolutely, Went to the upper room because that's where he was when he left Jesus and the other guys. And they hadn't even, you know, had the the Passover supper at that time. They were in the middle of it. So he probably went there first. We can guarantee that. And then he was likely not very dismayed when he found that that room was empty because it would dawn on him where he could find Jesus. If he's not here, I imagine I know where he'll be. And where would that be? The Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse two of John 18. It says that Jesus oft times resorted thither. Don't you love that word thither <laughs> with his disciples? Remember last week in in Luke 22:39, it had said that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives as he was wont to do. Another interesting way of putting it: as he was wont to do. In other words, what? That was his habit. When he was in the vicinity of Jerusalem, he would often go to that peaceful garden there of olive trees on the Mount of Olives. And so Judas was probably sure that this is where he would find the Lord and the eleven disciples. But more importantly than what Judas expected to find is the fact that the Lord knew that Judas would seek him there, right? Now think about Jesus. He could have gone somewhere else, couldn't he? Since he knew that Judas was going to betray him, and he sent him to do it quickly, as soon as Judas left, couldn't he have said to his men, let's get going, and they could have picked up and left and been on their way to Jericho, or on their way to at least Bethany, or maybe even on their way back to Galilee. They could have, in the last few hours, they could have covered a lot of territory. But he purposely went to the place he knew Judas would come looking for him, the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did he purposely go there? Well, because it was his hour, and he was ready. He was now fully ready, wasn't he? After his time in Gethsemane, he was ready. John 18.3 tells us something about the preparation of those who were his would-be captors, this arresting party. Luke tells us, I won't have you go there because it's just half of a verse, but I'll just listen to me. Luke tells us that it was a multitude. Matthew tells us that it was a great multitude. And he also adds, as does Mark, he also says that they came with swords and staves. What is a stave? Anybody know? It's a club. They came with swords and clubs. But from John, we learn more specifics about this great multitude. John tells us in verse 3 that that Judas was accompanied by a band of men. Now, some of your footnotes in your Bibles might tell you what that word band means, what it actually in the Greek is. It is the word cohort. And a cohort, very interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired john well john was there so he knew it was a cohort um, to use that word that is very important to understand the word cohort because a cohort was a tenth one tenth of a roman legion how many soldiers how many men were in a roman legion Yes. By? Did you say that by? 6,000. 6,000 men in a legion. You were right the first time. You should have stuck with that. 6,000 men in a Roman legion. So a cohort is one-tenth. So how many men in a cohort? All you mathematicians? <laughs> 600 men in a cohort. And that is amazing. That is mean, But in addition to those 600 Roman soldiers... There were officers, it says. Now that does not refer to Roman officers. I'm sure there were Roman officers as well as the Roman soldiers. But this officers is referring to officers of the temple guard, Jewish troops. So in addition to having Gentile Romans coming to arrest him, 600 of them, There were also these uh, Jewish temple guard. Now, they were those who were assigned to keep peace in the temple precincts. They were to keep law and order in the temple. Um, Remember them? At one point, they were sent to arrest Jesus, and they were the ones who came back empty-handed, and the the Pharisees said, where is he? We sent you to arrest him, and they came back, and they said, never man spake like this man. We just couldn't arrest him. Those were some of the temple guard, Jewish. And then there were also, of course, the Jewish chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders of the people. And you consider the temple guard and all these religious leaders, that is easily another, at least another hundred men. That's in addition to the 600 that make up the Roman cohort. Okay? Okay. So minimum, total, 700 men that come to arrest Jesus. Now, it is not uncommon, and I am going to warn you ahead of time, it's not uncommon to pick up a commentary and find the author calling into question the fact that there really could have been that many people who came with Judas to arrest 12 men, Jesus and 11 disciples. Probably, I would dare say that most of us have never pictured that in our mind, unless we've studied this before. I mean, why would that be? Well, because most of us get our ideas from Bible picture books, don't we? And so in our mind's eye, we see Jesus and the disciples there in the garden, and Judas in the front, and, and, you know, a a, a small band of of Romans and some Jewish-looking guys there to arrest him. But nothing like 700, you know how many that is? That's a lot of people, and they're all armed, or, you know, not the Jewish religious rulers wouldn't be armed, but all the rest of them have some kind of a sword or a club in their hand. I mean, we don't usually picture that, but that is the literal meaning of that word cohort, but it's usually ignored, and so I want to spend a moment here because there is significance to the Holy Spirit inspiring John to use that precise word. We do know, for example, that this is not really out of line at all for for what went on in those days. In Acts 23.23, we see how very careful the Roman authorities were when they had to transport from place to place a prisoner or a person of some notoriety. In that passage, in Acts 23:23, they were transporting someone from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And that someone was definitely a man of some notoriety. <laughs> Who was that man? Paul. They, and under cover of night, they snuck him out of Jerusalem to carry him to Caesarea why well because there was a band of 40 jewish men who had actually taken a vow that they would not eat or drink until paul was dead he was just spreading the gospel too far he was you know people were converting all over the known world and they especially hated it that so many jewish people were coming to believe in jesus as the messiah so they vowed that they would kill paul before they ever ate again i guess they died because paul didn't (laughs) guess they all starved to death but under cover of night we are told that it was almost 500 men that they used to transport paul to caesarea it spells it out there were 70 horsemen the men who rode horses There were 200 spearmen, and there were 200 foot soldiers. That's 470 men just to carry Paul from one place to another. You see, they knew, they understood, the Romans well understood that they were dealing with a very volatile part of the world. These Jewish people were headstrong, and they were rebellious, and there were always some kind of a little, there was an insurrection of one sort or another going on funny, isn't it? That part of the world is still very volatile to this very day. And Israel's volatility was certainly also, you see, the case the night of the Lord's arrest. It was not only the festival season of the Passover, and if you look at Israel's history before this particular Passover, she had had a number of great incidents that had happened at Passover time when hundreds of people were killed, when Jews were trying to revolt against Rome. And uh, there were literally, you know, as I said, maybe two million people there in the city. And many of those people were Galileans. Remember, Jesus had engaged the vast majority of his earthly ministry and did many of his good deeds in that part of the nation among the Galileans. And even though most of them did not put their faith in him, they still loved him, didn't they? Not with agape kind of love, but they, they loved him because he was able to do good things for them. And they were, by and large, the people who had hailed him when he rode into Jerusalem on Sunday and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the situation, as I said, even before this Passover was always a powder keg at festival times when so many people were there and all the animosity that went on between the Jews and their Roman oppressors. There was a group of terrorists. They even had terrorists back then thing they didn't have you know bombs they could strap to themselves because they would have done that probably but uh, there was a group of terrorists and they were uh, known as zealots and even one of the disciples had been a zealot simon the zealot and the zealots were insurrectionists who were determined to do all they could to drive the romans out of israel they knew there was no way they could do this army to army because the jewish army could never match up with the roman army could it but what they would do is they would slip around and they would do what they could to stir up the crowds to rebel. Especially when there were so many there. They'd go around and they'd be whispering, you know, let's, let's try to kill some Romans. And they would sneak up on Roman soldiers whenever they found one or two or three isolated somewhere. They would sneak up on them and with their little short daggers, they would kill them, slit their throats. And at feast days, this was particularly a very touchy situation. This is why, you see, Rome actually sent additional troops into Jerusalem during festival days, festival seasons. They would send more troops into Jerusalem at the Passover season. And that's why even when we look in, in some of the trials that the Lord went through, we find out that Herod is there in Jerusalem. Normally, Herod would not be in Jerusalem because he was a tetrarch of Galilee. But why was he down there? Because there was often something going on, and he needed to be there to settle down the Galileans. And the Roman troops that came would be garrisoned at the fortress of Antonia, which was located at the northwest corner of the temple. Now, this really infuriated the Jews because from that fortress which had a tower, at the northwest corner of the temple, they could literally look down into the temple precincts and see what was going on. And they would spy on the Jewish people. And they would see down there if there was a group huddling together. And they would go down, you know, and try to, they'd send the temple guard and and try to um, dissolve maybe something going on. But the Jews hated the fact that the Romans could look down into their temple from that uh, fortress. They hated that kind of exposure. So, you see, this this whole thing is a powder keg, right? And now there was this man who had ridden into Jerusalem just a few days earlier, and the people by the thousands were hailing him as king of Israel? He's a very popular figure, and many even believe him to be the Messiah. So, you see, in light of all these facts from history, there's no doubt whatsoever that they sent a very large detachment of men, hundreds of soldiers, to arrest Jesus. This isn't something that, we, that is just so far out that we can't believe it. it. It lines up perfectly with what they did at that time, you know, like with Paul, and what they would do because they wanted to, to try to squelch a rebellion. And they may have even, I wonder if you ever thought about this, they may have even stationed these men along the roads from the city out to the garden. Now, the garden was three-fourths of a mile from the city wall. So maybe what they did is they positioned these soldiers, 600 of them plus the temple guards, they may have stationed them at strategic points all the way from the city to the garden. So instead of seeing 700 men there in the garden all fluttered together, they may have been spread out. You see? Because once word slipped out that the popular Jesus had been arrested, they needed to be stationed wherever they could stop people from, from gathering together. You know, for, for all Judas knew, Jesus may have, as soon as he left the upper room, Jesus may have gone about the city and the countryside arousing the people you know once judas left jesus could have said to his men well judas is the one who's going to betray me and he's on his way to do that right now so let's get out there and wake everybody up especially the galileans and tell them get their staves get their swords and we're going to fight we're going to fight back couldn't he have done that he could have he could have done that just as well as he could have Gone somewhere else besides Gethsemane. Like I said, he could be on his way to Jericho. And remember, it was from Jericho that he came to Jerusalem. So he could be on his way back, halfway back or so, by this time. But he didn't do any of that, did he? And he didn't hide in the garden. He, he didn't do any of that because it was his hour. It is these facts, you see, once we get this picture from John, it's all these facts that magnify for us what is coming. If you read John's account very carefully, which is what we should always do, and we see that he includes this detail about a cohort of Roman soldiers, and that he also tells us that they came with lanterns and torches. Why would they come with lanterns and torches? Well, just in case Jesus, yeah, it was night, and they needed to penetrate the darkness, but what if Jesus and his men were hiding? They needed the light so they could find him. But, of course, Jesus wouldn't be hiding, you know, but he could have been if he had been a normal man, but he wasn't. But John tells us they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. When we learn of the magnitude of this operation with Satan in Judas at the helm, okay, he's up there at the front and all these men behind, that really gives us the same kind of picture as david going out to meet goliath have you ever wondered why in 1 samuel 17 it goes the holy spirit goes to all that trouble to tell us all about goliath his size everything he's wearing in detail i mean do you know how tall the man was 6 cubits and a span which is six inches, a span is like as wide as your hand. And a cubit is, I am a perfect span. From here to here is exactly six inches. I, I'm built like a man. <laughs> and from here, my, from your elbow to the top of your middle finger is a cubit. And it was approximately 18 inches. And I am a perfect 18 inches. I'm just so proud of my arms and hands. <laughs> but anyway, if you, ma- if you do the math correctly, He was 117 inches tall, which comes out to nine feet and three-fourths. So he was just short of 10 feet tall. That's a big dude. And then we're told what he wears. And he has, it says, a helmet of brass. He had a coat of armor, and we're told how much it weighed. Can you imagine putting on a coat and it weighs 125 pounds? That's how much his coat of armor weighed. And he had um, these shin guards that were made out of brass and that were very heavy and he had a javelin that it tells us how much the the spear weighed and how much the spear head weighed and when you put it together it was 32 pounds just for his javelin and he carried that between his shoulders and it tells us his shield was so big that he had a man that walked in front of him carrying his shield why does it go to all that trouble well, to tell us all that was to magnify the magnitude of what David was facing. And remember, David, you know, he's just a young guy, not a little boy, but maybe a teenager. And he goes out to face him with nothing but his regular clothes. They tried to put King Saul's armor on him, but it was way too big. And he said, forget this. And he just went out with a sling and five smooth stones, right? So we see the magnitude of the situation. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing here through John. He is giving us all of these details to cause us to enter into the anxiety of the moment. Now, of course, you and I have read ahead. So we know how all this ends. But try again to pretend you're reading this for the very first time. And try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. And picture the fear in their heart when suddenly, you know, one minute they're in this peaceful garden beneath these beautiful towering old olive trees and they're just snoring away, right? And the next minute it's like fireworks, all these lanterns and and torches and 700 men there armed to the hilt and no wonder they were so scared, wouldn't you be? Of course. So we're given those details on purpose. And that brings us to verse 4, where all all of these preparations and all that is against the Lord is brought to bear upon him. And now we see how he responds. Verses 4 to 9 are only given to us in John. All right? And first of all, we read in verse 4 these words. Jesus, therefore, knowing. Knowing what? You should ask yourself when you read something. Jesus, knowing what? Jesus knowing everything. We don't want to overlook this. You don't want to diminish this. Because this is the kind of reassuring statement upon which you and I can anchor our soul for all of eternity. Jesus knows it all. It says, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him. Don't diminish that in your minds to something like premonition. Or something like we women have, which is called what? Intuition. Or something like foresight. No way is it speaking of something like that. This is speaking of divine omniscience. The best martyr in church history, whoever that would have been, right up to the last moment, maybe before they lit the fire and he was burned to the stake, or she was fed to the lions. That martyr, up to the very last moment, had the hope that there could be some kind of an intervention, right? You know, the lone ranger comes riding in on his white horse, <laughs> or something divine happens from the sky. You know, they, up to the last minute, they had a hope that something could change. But Jesus knew from the very beginning all things that were coming to him. He knew that there would be no interruption to spare him. He knows about the scourging. He knows about all of the trials. He knows about the crown of thorns. The body blows. He knows about the fist to his face. He knows about them pulling out his beard. He knows about the spit, the cross, and the horrible separation for the first time in eternity of his soul from his father. He knows it all. And that, you see, makes what follows so very, very majestic, so impressive. John tells us that with that omniscience of knowing everything that he was facing, what does he do? Is he back there hiding and cowering behind the biggest olive tree he could find? No way! He steps out of the gloom and he initiated, he initiated the meeting with his captors. It says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, did what? Went forth. He didn't wait to be rudely called forth to appear before them. Or challenged. Or commanded to give himself up. Come out, come out wherever you are. You know? He didn't wait for any of that. Did it ever occur to you... That no temple guard, no temple officer had the opportunity to give a command to Jesus Christ? Did you ever stop to think about that? Do you know that no Roman officer ever got the opportunity to challenge him or to give him a command to surrender? He went forth. He initiated the meeting, and he initiated the conversation. He did. He started the whole conversation. No one spoke before he spoke. Matthew Henry, very well-known 18th century commentator, said this, just as an aside comment. He said this. He said, when people came to make him king, Jesus withdrew and hid. Remember that? After he had fed the 5,000? a few fish and barley loaves and they wanted to make him their king without the the crown without the cross and what did he do? He withdrew from them and he hid himself but Matthew Henry says when they came to crucify him he stepped forward and yielded he asked them who they sought whom seek ye And when they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, he identified himself to them. And notice that the rest of that verse purposely makes mention of Judas standing there, right? He identifies himself, but it says Judas is standing there. That's also very significant. You see, just as no one got to give Jesus a command that night, so also Judas was not really the one who identified jesus to the troops who identified jesus to the troops he did he did now later we're going to see that judas carries out he simply carries out his charade with his devious and hypocritical kiss but by the time he does that jesus has already here identified himself to his captors. So he says, Whom seek ye? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And now I'm going to ask you, how does the Lord identify himself to his captors? Does he say, I'm Jesus of Nazareth? No. He answers by saying, let's all say this together, and say it with a booming voice, ladies. He says, I am. I love it. That's why this is one of my very favorite passages. And what was the response of his answer? Look with me. I want everybody to have your eyes on this. 18.6. Because this is the most amazing part of this whole scene. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Last scene, he was on the ground. This scene there on the ground. Now, do not let commentators and preachers and Sunday school teachers or whoever you listen to persuade you to diminish the literal words of this account in any way. We just read exactly what it says, okay? Even so, you'd be surprised, even some of the most conservative commentators give put out and have an effort, or they try to explain this in a more plausible way to us. For example, this is true, this is what one commentator says, he, and what they're doing really is diminishing the majesty of the Lord in this scene, okay? But they will say, for example, that when Jesus stepped forward, and he was so self-assured, and he was so composed, that they were surprised such composure and those who were in the front sort of just staggered back and they bumped into the guys behind them who then staggered back into the guys behind them and it was kind of like the domino effect you know and 700 can you imagine 700 armed men fell down I mean come on really this is Roman troops we're talking about these are battle tested veterans it takes more faith to believe something like that than to believe the the alternative. Do you know what the alternative is? It it fell down, yeah. (laughs) It means exactly what it says. This was a miracle. Jesus spoke his God name, not Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, no, 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 no. He existed long before he ever went to live in Nazareth of Galilee, right? He spoke... His eternal God name. He is the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And revealed to him his name. I am that I am. I'm the eternal self existing one. The one who forever has and forever will live in the present tense. Not I was and not I will be. But I am. And by simply the power. You see of the spoken name. ...of God. By the power of that name, some 700 armed enemies of Christ, including one who was possessed by Satan himself. Who else fell to the ground before the Lord? Satan. They fell. They fell backward. They didn't even fell forward. fall forward. They fell backward. It was a miracle. No one could arrest him or do him any harm whatsoever... Without his willing consent. And that's exactly what he says to Pilate in just a few more hours when Pilate is talking to him. And Pilate says to Jesus, Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or to let you free? And Jesus says to him, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given to thee from above. What we have here is something inexplicable something miraculous you know what it was it was a stone a smooth stone right at the head of the first one in line and they all went tumbling down just like goliath it was a david and goliath all over again It was like when the Lord, remember this, when the Lord was walking on the stormy waves of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, this was right after he had fed the 5,000. We had just talked about that. And they wanted to make him king, so he removed himself from the crowds. But he sent his men in a boat, and he said, go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, they're out in the middle of the lake, and what happens? Suddenly, a storm whips up, a satanic storm it was. And they're out there in the boat, and these are, again, veteran fishermen, but they're scared to death. But what scared them even more (laughs) was when they saw what they thought was a ghost walking on top of the waves out to them. Then they were really scared to death. And who was it? Of course, it was the master. It was Jesus. And we are told, and, and a lot of people overlook this too, but this was in another, another amazing miracle. It says, and this is in John 6, 21, that uh, when they willingly received him into the ship, immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Do you know what that means? That means that a boat with 13 people in it is instantly transported over some four miles of sea to the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. In, in a twinkling of an eye, it happened. It was a miracle. It was a picture when we studied it as a picture of this life, isn't it? We who follow the Lord, we're in this stormy world, you know, this satanically controlled stormy world we live in. And then when Jesus comes to get us and instantly we're on the other side, aren't we? With him instantly in the twinkling of an eye. It was a picture of this life for the Christian. It's a miracle. So how long do you think some 700 men were lying there flat on the ground in Gethsemane. I don't know. We're not told. (laughs) Maybe a minute or so. Um, Almost as if they were paralyzed. Or maybe they immediately, you know, with shouts and curses, began to pick themselves up and look at each other, you know, kind of shaking their heads and everything. Whatever happened, I don't know. We're not told. But whatever happened, it was, No doubt about it, an outright miracle. And it was clearly a foretaste of that great day when Christ will come at his second coming. And by the power, again, of just his spoken word, he will defeat every foe, demonic and human, Gentile and Jewish, who are gathered together in a battle in the valley of Megiddo again. They will all fall before him. Augustine said, if, if this is what happened when men came to be his judge, what is going to happen when he comes to be their judge? Every knee is going to bow, whether they want to or not. In Gethsemane, when every man, Jew or Gentile, fell at the spoken name, jesus gave for himself i am their falling before him was a divine miracle that confirmed the truth of the lord's claim do you get that when he said who he was and they fell before him that miracle confirmed his claim to be the great i am and don't let anyone diminish the magnitude of this miracle in your mind. This was a mighty miracle. Well, then, verse 7, Jesus asks them again. It's almost like <laughs> immediate repeat. Whom seek ye? And they repeat the same answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's amazing, too, isn't it? When you think about that, that is amazing. How could all these guys who had just fell down and, and got up now act as if nothing amazing had just happened how, how can they act like nothing spectacular had just occurred it's just another aspect of the miracle they may have been kept in a paralyzed suspended state in time i don't know some have suggested that and when they were back up they had absolutely no memory of what had just happened it's it could maybe explain some of the other things that we read about in the gospels like when the people of Nazareth wanted to push him off of a cliff. And, they, and, you know, they took him out, and there they were. They were ready to kill him, push him off a cliff. And then the next thing they know, Jesus is gone. Maybe, because he can do whatever he wants, maybe they're all just instantly paralyzed. And when they come out of it, they look around shake their heads. Where is he? Where did he go? That, it, that could explain, you know, a lot of times the Jews had stones in their hands to kill him. And they're ready to, to, to stone him to death. And it says he passed right through the midst of them. Well, they could all be there just for a suspended moment of time while he passes through them. And then they come to Where is he? He's gone. That could explain it. I don't know. I'm just speculating. All I know is what we have here is a miracle. Whatever happened. These men, including Judas and including Satan inside of Judas, were restored to their original positions. And when they were, they were just as intent on their evil purpose as they were before they fell to the ground why does the Lord ask them I'm almost finished why does he ask them a second time who they were seeking well we're given the answer we're given the answer in verse 8 I have told you that I am if therefore ye seek me what let these go their way alright so what have we seen so far in this scene regarding the majesty of the king? The king in control in Gethsemane. First of all, we are told that Jesus knew all things that were to take place. Second, he initiated the meeting with those coming to arrest him. Third, he freely identifies himself. Four, he knocks them prostrate to the ground with a word. Two words in the Greek. echo. Amen, I am. And now, what does he do? What is this? Five, six, five. Now, fifth, he commands them. And again, who also is he commanding? Satan. He says, let these go their way. Don't get the idea that Jesus is saying, will you please let my men go, please? It's not anything like that. This is the king giving a command. Let these go their way. And why does he give this command? Verse 9, John tells us that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. All right. When did he say that? You all should know. When did the Lord say that to his father? Just a little while ago right in his high priestly prayer John seventeen twelve, he was talking to his father and he said I have lost none of those who gave he is about to experience think of this the most excruciating experience that any person could ever ever know so agonizing that it is a sorrow unto death and he sweat drops of blood and he had to be ministered to by an angel sent from God and yet At this critical time, when he's beginning to sip of that terrible cup, he is still thinking of who? He's thinking of that little group of men, the love gifts the Father had given to him. And he knows, you see, that they are not prepared to face the temptation of the hour before them. He knows that this is a satanic force. This is a spiritual battle taking place here. He knows that Satan is in Judas. And I'm sure he sees demons all over the place. You know, above this arresting party. And he knows that Satan has desired to have his men and to sift them like wheat. And he knows this too. He knows the assault is not about their bodies. The assault is about what? Their faith—it's about their faith—and he knows that they're not ready for this assault. They didn't spend the last hour or two in prayer like they should. They cannot go into the furnace of the high priest's palace and hold up. I mean, Peter couldn't even hold up when a girl said, "Aren't you a gal? Aren't you one of his?" At a fire later that night, right? couldn't hold up there He's sure none of them could sh- hold up in, in the high priest's palace he had told the father that of those he gave to him he would lose no, none and so they would not be subjected that night to that kind of interrogation but he had prayed for them and what did he pray that their faith fail not so the day would come that some of these men would stand before some of these very same officials. And in that day, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they will be bold. They will be ready. And they will say to their captors these words, You judge for yourselves whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto men or to hearken unto God. We can do none other than preach, Christ, crucify. Same guys. But in that hour, they were ready. Changed men? You better believe it. Jesus had prayed for them that their faith wouldn't fail. And it didn't. Their faith filled the whole known world at that time. And guess who else he has prayed for that our faith would not fail? You and I, if you belong to Christ. Now I want to end, just bow your heads and I'm going to just pray a benediction from Jude, all right? Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. God bless you.